Good morning. If you got your Bibles, go to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1. If that let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, give us understanding hearts, God. Give us wisdom. Open up the eyes of our hearts to see, to know. Let us see you clearly, God. Let us know you better. Let us love you more, Father God. Speak to us by your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 1. We're still talking about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God. And last week we was talking about that the holiness that the Spirit of God placed within us. One of the basic definitions of it is devotion to God. Being truly set apart and having your whole being centered around who he is. And not being split in your love and your devotion. When we're talking about one of the foundations of that is understanding our identity as being connected to God. So as we know who we are, that helps us better to be what we're supposed to be. Because identity and being flows hand in hand. And so we're going to begin the transition and still focus on this identity thing a little bit. And seeing the one of the greatest works of the Spirit of God that connects to everything else we've been talking about. And that is the new birth. That the Spirit of God is, is the Spirit that recreates us, regenerates us, and makes us born again. So let's read famous passage in John, Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. In this famous passage, this is where we get our language for being born again, new birth. But as we begin to delve into this, I want to pick out a couple of things that provokes a question always in my mind. In verse 3, Jesus makes the statement. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the way Jesus posits this is it's impossible for somebody to see the kingdom of God without being born again. Cannot happen. And again, in verse 5, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in verse 7, he said, marvel not that I say you must be born again. So this new birth is being born again in the mind of Jesus is a necessity. It's something that you cannot enter heaven. You cannot be a child of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God 
without being born again. So the question that always comes to my mind when I read this is, why must we be born again? Why is it a necessity? Why is it something that has to take place? Out of all the laws, all the rules, and all the things that God gave us in the Old Testament, and throughout all the prophets and all the callings, why can't we simply take heed to their words, hear their, hear their decrees, do what they say, and usher our way on into the kingdom of God? Why is the new birth the necessity? Why must we be born again? Why cannot we enter except we are born again? And to understand this, we must understand who we are as humans. That there is a flaw within us that hampers us or hinders us from being with God, being in the kingdom of God, being like God, spending eternity with him. Go, we're just going to take this smaller trek. It might end up being a big trek. (laughs) But it's supposed to be small. Starting in Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis chapter 8, we're going to go all the way down to verse 21. All right, I'll start reading at verse 20. Saying, Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So this is after God has destroyed the whole earth with the flood. The earth was wicked, Genesis 6 tells us. And it said God, it repented God or it grieved God to his heart that he created man. So he came up with a plan to kill everybody. Just wipe them out. And everybody knows the story, but he saved Noah and his family, his children and their wives. And this is afterwards. So the earth has been destroyed. All human beings wiped out. Only people that remain are eight. And this is God's description of mankind. Now we, this is coming from righteous Noah. Noah was a righteous man, perfect and upright man, King James said. But in 21, after he offered his offering to God, God begins to make promises. He said, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So this is God's description of man. So Noah, the righteous one, has been redeemed. God is recreating humanity through this one man's family. But in God's eyes, as he looked at the descendants of Noah, and it's just eight of them right now, he said man's imagination is evil from his youth. And what he means by imagination is not like we think, like we're seeing imaginations station. But the thoughts, the contemplations, the ideas of his heart, so the thoughts, the ideas, the contemplations, the man is evil. When is it, the, when does it become evil? Said from his youth. So there's something in man that is pure evil that colors all his thoughts from the youth. 
Go to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Let's start reading at 7. It said, Blessed is the man that trusted in the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spread it out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but a leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, and according to the fruit of his doings. Now, this is God. And I like the contrast there for some reason. He talks about this blessed man. That a man who is blessed is the one that trusted in the Lord who hoped the Lord is. So person who got his hope is the Lord's. This is the blessed person. Then he talks about all the prosperity and the goodness that are going to come to this blessed person. Then it seems like the subject just switched. And he says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And he begins to describe the heart of man. It says deceitful above all things. What it means by that is the number one attribute of the human heart. Above all other things that you can say about the human heart is that it's deceitful. Y'all, you get that. So your heart, the best thing God can say about it is number one thing, it's a lie. That's deep, ain't it? And that makes a whole lot of sense. Because if y'all have lived life anything like me, there have been times where I was totally convinced in my heart of the truth or something. Y'all ever been like that? You're in high school or whatever it is, about a date, or uh, just any old thing. Well, you just sure enough knew deep down in your heart that this was the reality. And then life happens and it's completely other than what you thought it was. And you was following your heart. And you end up what? wrong because the best thing about your heart is a lie that's his number one attribute it lies it's deceitful it leads you astray so that's why the little author song on pbs i can't sing that song no more i used to like it. it's a catchy little tune then i realized that song come from the devil <laughs> it's a simple message that comes from the start, that comes from the heart, believing yourself is the place to start. And I thought about that thing, man, I ain't know nothing. I be around here singing these devilish lies. <laughs> Talking about believing yourself, that's the place to start. Because if I start with me, I'm going to end up wrong. Because the best thing my heart can do for me is lie to me. You cannot trust your heart. So your imaginations of your heart is evil always from the youth. And your heart is desperately wicked. Do you see the adjectives he put on that thing? Desperately wicked. So then when people tell you that everybody is basically good. What they doing to you? They lying. Either they lying because they evil, like Arthur in that song, 
<laughs> Are they lying? Because they don't know no better. There you go. And they deceived because they were following what? They heart. Because if you listen to your heart, what's it going to tell you about you? You all right. How many times in contemplation and thinking about yourself, honestly, in an open moment, have you have reached the conclusion that I'm a desperately wicked, vile, and evil person? Now, you, you do the little things in, in school sometimes, in elementary, they make you write the little poem, or you put your name on the side, and you have to put little adjectives about yourself. How many times have you used something that was evil, wicked, low down, wretched? How many times those things fit? <laughs> yeah, we never done that. I remember doing the little things. I remember, see, it started, it was rough for me. That took me forever to start. So the first letter is Z. <laughs> I was like, golly, <laughs> I know absolutely no words other than Zenith that starts with a Z. <laughs> I was in elementary school. I knew nothing. And teachers said, get the dictionary. But they don't have them in class no more, but that's a whole other something. <laughs> I had to get the dictionary. And I was stuck always with the one word, because you know, we got them elementary school dictionaries. They got like four words enough for every letter. And Z, they didn't have nothing. They had Z, the last letter of it, <laughs> and they had like Zany. So I had to put that on there. Hmm? Yes, that's, the, that's all I had, man. Don't be judging me. <laughs> that's, that's all I got to work with. <laughs> oh, every year the teacher made us do that. That was I was stuck with that one. But I learned another Z word. But never. When I got to E, did I put evil? Never. It never even popped in my mind. Do stuff like excellent. <laughs> never did evil pop in there. Now, especially during elementary school. Now, it was like the worst years of my existence. And all the fighting, all the trouble I got into, never did evil pop into my head. As many times as the teacher sent me to the office, called my mama, she had to take off work because I couldn't go back to school unless a parent brought me back. Never did evil pop up on there as being a description of myself. When I got to S, sinful was not in the vocabulary word. Never. Never worked out that way. All the descriptions were something good, Something excellent. The only time bad worked is because Michael Jackson and LL Cool J were bad. So when I talk about bad, I say I was a good bad. Because my dad asked my boy, what you mean you bad? That's good bad, dad. <laughs> you, you get it, what we're saying. Our hearts don't allow us to be honest with ourselves. Because your heart is a lie. And what we need to understand is that the best thing your heart can do for you is lie to you and lead you astray. That's why the Proverbs say there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death or destruction. Why does it seem right to you? Because your heart makes it look like it's right. 
That's who we are. Go to Psalms 58. Psalms chapter 58. Psalms 58 verse 1. Said, do you indeed speak righteousness? O congregation, do you judge uprightly? O you sons of men? Yea, in heart you work wickedness. Yea, weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. The poison is like the poison of the serpent, and they are like the deaf adder that stoppeth her ear, which will not hearken to the voice of the charmers, charming never so wisely. So this is the psalmist's description of the wicked. And he's talking to the congregation. Like, do you speak righteousness? Do you judge uprightly so think y'all do right? Y'all saying the right things? Said, but in your heart you work wickedness. So even though they're coming together, they're the people of God, the congregation of God, they're saying the right things, they're judging in the right way, but it says in your heart you work wickedness. So have you ever paid attention to the violence of your hands? So it's possible, according to the psalmist, for somebody to come and say the right things, to be a part of the right assembly, to make good and right judgments, but to be wicked on the inside. And to live a life where their hands, the works of their hands are filled with violence. But they still be a part of the congregation. And he go on to say that the wicked go astray from the womb. From the time that they bust through. And they breathe their own breath of oxygen. Sin start working in their little heart. And from that moment on, they're running away from God. Said the wicked go astray from the womb. So your precious little bundle, the prettiest thing you ever beheld, is a small, cuddly, cute sinner. Full of lies, deceitfulness, wickedness, evil, rebellion, all down in their pretty little heart. That's what they are. And it's possible for them to grow up a small, nice, cuddly, cute little something and become a part of a congregation that can judge rightly because you taught them right. That can speak the right things because they've been around it enough and still be hands filled with violence, still with working in their heart wickedness. Because that's who we are as human beings. Just look at our history here as good old American citizens. It's baffling if you truly think about it. Like down there on Fisk Road. Drive down Fisk Road, a little bit of road that connects you from McGee Road to the boulevard. They got this nice big old church down there. And this church make me contemplate every time I see it. It's the George Whitfield Memorial Church. Memorial United Methodist Church. Now George Whitfield is one of the greatest preachers according to reputation that ever set foot on soil here in the United States. The great partner of John Wesley preached all up and down this here East, East Coast. Part of the second great awakening that brought a shaking and an awakening to the Americas as we know it. And when Whitfield touched feet here on these Americas, he saw the mistreatment of some human beings and he began to pick up his pen to open up his voice 
and reviled the preachers and reviled the teachers and the deacons about how evil they were and about how wicked they were. And then something strange happened. This man with so much fire and so much righteousness used of God in such a great way became the head, became the head of an orphanage in good old what we now know as Georgia. And he raised in his orphanage another one of our other prestigious places, Huntington College, the lady who they founded that thing after, she was the money behind it. She went on back to Huntington, England and was sending money back here, George Whitfield running the thing. But it was something amazing about that place, taking care of all these orphans, raising all these kids, doing all these great things. But there were some people cutting the grass, fixing the things that were broken, repairing roofs and doing all these type of stuff for free. Completely free. So free that if they ask for money, they probably get beat. Now, they were not volunteers. They didn't come from Tennessee. They were forced to be there. And they had no other lot in life but to be that. Laborers. Workers. But they're working for this great Christian organization. Under the leadership of this great Christian man. This great righteous man who condemned the institution of slavery once he saw it with his own eyes. He could not imagine that Christian men and women of God could treat people like this. But a strange thing happened once he got to this place where he had to run and take care of these orphans. And money was running short because his money was way on the other side of the sea. Now all of a sudden he picked up his pen and he began to justify the institution of the mistreatment of other human beings. And I always contemplate and wonder, how could a man used by God, how could a man speak so much fire to cause so many people to repentance, pick up his pen and justify the institution that is the degradation of another image of God? How could it be possible? Then I thought about this thing. Because just because you can say the right things and know the right things does not mean that you are right. That there's this evil deep inside of us who if it has its way will lead us and guide us to straight to destruction. And that's what he fell victim to. Social pressures, money pressures, but all of those things were produced by the evil of his heart. So now we got a church that memorializes a dude who demoralized human beings. And we stuck because we're the Christian people. We believe in the power of God. We pray for revival. And this is one of the instruments of revival on this continent. But yet it's still evil. How in the world does that work? How in the world can I go downtown and to listen to the man play the violin? And I look up and see the plaque. Devoted, put here by Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy. My God, Lee. God, I wonder how you feel me sending this secret. <laughs> how does this work? How can men so righteous be so wicked? It is because they were only formally righteous. They allowed their mind to be shaped by a culture that allowed their heart to do things that it wanted to do. And that is get rich 
dominate. So anything that jeopardizes that ain't right. But I'm pretty sure if you had a conversation with them, they could tell you with all the beautiful of scripture, the beauty of scripture, how they went wrong. Because they can speak right, they can judge rightly, but wickedness is in their heart. And that tells you something about us as human beings. That our heart is far more wicked than what we do. When people say this stuff all the time, when you out on the streets and that man, God knows my heart. And I always respond like, golly, that's a dangerous thing. Because let's let's do this little test. Let's see, is our heart really more wicked than our actions? Because people got the idea that my heart is better than what I do. So let's think about it. How many of you have slapped everybody that it came into your mind and slapped. You slapped every single person you ever thought about slapping. Yeah, in your mind, everybody in your mind, every time you get a thought or a desire in your heart that you want to slap this person, you did it. None of us ever done that. Because our heart is way more wicked than our actions. We ain't bold to do all the stuff in our heart. Now, sometimes you right there in the middle of the Tecmo Bowl and mama told you to go clean them dishes and do whatever you want to, you get mad. And as soon as you get a great enough distance, all type of stuff get to coming out your mouth. Why do you have to wait till you get that distance? Because you ain't crazy enough. <laughs> <laughs> to say any of that stuff you thinking in your mind to your mama. So your actions it was a whole lot better than your heart. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because there's all type of violence that go on in our heart and our mind that we ever do. So we can act better than we truly are. We can put on better than we really are. Because how many of you ever been with people that you really didn't like? And you have some stuff you just really wanted to tell them about themselves. And as soon as they came and spoke to you, you start smiling and you say, how you doing? <laughs> Anybody ever done that? You never truly tell them how you feel. And some of us, if you, if you eternalize in a self person like I was, I grew up by myself most of the time. So you have the ability to have all these grand conversations by yourself. And you be sitting there and you be waiting for the confrontation like cheaters. The confrontation. <laughs> And you be going, man, man, man I'll tell you, man, she's going to say this. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be tired of this. Ain't nobody going to have this. No, 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 no. Let, let her say. <laughs> you say, go on, no, 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 no. And you get all this stuff. And you be in there about 20, 30 minutes having this conversation. Then the confrontation happened. And none of that stuff that you, that you said, you did, or you thought come out your mouth. Especially when somebody's done you wrong. You don't even bring it up. 
You just take the loss and you just suffer and you sit there feeling sad. Then when they leave, you be like, they better not do it again. <laughs> oh, they do that again. This is it. Now why you tell them? <laughs> because your heart is far more bold than you are. Your heart is evil. And so when people talk about God don't judge you, actually, he look at your heart. Oh, Lord, we all in trouble. Because your heart is far more wicked than you are. And if the Bible be true, it's been that way since you came from the womb. Look, look, look at the end of that thing. In verse 3, it said, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born. What did they start doing? Speaking lies. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. So he, he gives you a description of the going astray, speaking lies. And I make this statement all the time, and nobody's been able to prove me wrong yet. That human beings start telling lies once they start talking. They're like one of the first things people learn how to do. Start lying. Mama tell you to eat your vegetables before you can have juice. You throw the things in the trash and say, I ate all my food. Your brother don't have to teach you that. Nobody have to school you on the ropes. You just do it. Like my wife tell me the story. I, I was now with my son. She used to try to make him drink water before he get juice. So when he asked for juice, she put a cup of water there. And you drank the water, then you can get juice. Then a strange thing started happening. He come with an empty cup quite fast. <laughs> and one day she walk in, <laughs> and he done pulled something, climbed up to the sink, and poured in the water <laughs> out, getting ready to turn around and tell her she, he drunk all his water. Now, wife stayed home with him all the time. Just her and him. I come home, she go to work, and it's him and me. That's his social influence. Nobody else. But yet and still, some way, somehow, only being with the people who told him, tell the truth, don't lie, he figured out how to lie. And was crafty at it. At like three years old. All this ingenuity. Got sense enough not just to pour it in the trash. But to find something. To climb up to the sink and pour it in the sink. Where does that evil come from? How did he get so evil genius? How? You can't blame it on society. He ain't had one. <laughs> Only time he go outside was rolling the ball with his daddy. Walking around with his daddy at Walmart with his mama and come back home. This is his spirit of influence. But yet and still he figured out how to lie to his spirit of influence and deceive them so that he can manipulate to get what he wants. Why? Because he's evil. And he was born that way. So, he was born evil. 
born a liar. You understand what I'm saying? He was born a liar. But even though he was born a liar, we got this amazing thing that we try to do. And what's that? Teach him how not to be a liar. You get what I'm saying? He was born a liar. And he started lying before we can figure out how to put whole sentences together. And somehow, we want to figure out how to make him not be a liar. You get what I'm saying? We'll come back to that later. You're born a liar, right? You sure? You understand what I'm saying? You're born a liar. But somehow, we want to figure out how to make him not be a liar. Even though he was born that way. You sure you understand that? It is not socially acceptable for me to put my son out there and say, y'all excuse my son, he was born a liar. Y'all need to accept him as he is. So when he comes to your store and he steals all your stuff, please do not send him to jail. He was born that way. You can't judge him for being how he was born. You understand that? <laughs> he was born that way now. He started lying before we even knew that he could put a sentence together. He don't even have memory of all the lies that he told because it's been now since he can remember. You're born that way. But when he go to Walmart, we're going to put him in jail. Even though he was born that way. Y'all understand what I'm saying? All right, we move on then. <laughs> as long as everybody understand it. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 16. Let me speed up. And Jesus said, are you... Also yet without understanding. Do you not yet understand that whatsoever entereth at the mouth goeth out, goeth into the belly and is cast out in the drought? But those things, chapter 15, verse 16, I'm on verse 18, but those things which proceeded out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, fault with false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. So this is Jesus, the psychology of Jesus. They fussing at him because his disciples didn't follow the traditions. Like they're going to be unclean. They're not going to be a part of the heritage because they don't eat. They didn't wash their hands before they picked a little piece of corn and ate it. Jesus said, y'all are completely lost. The stuff that defiles a man are the stuff that are the things that come from where? His heart. So the things that defile you come from within you, which makes it hard for you not to be defiled. Because all of the things he lists, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies, all these things flow from the heart of man. And they are the things that defile you. So you are a defilement machine by birth. All this stuff is in you. And it flows from you. This is the nature of human beings. That we defile ourselves, we corrupt ourselves because we have corruption built within us. Go to Romans chapter 8. We'll look at two more of these and going to transition a little bit. Well, it goes straight to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Saying you, chapter 2 verse 1. 
hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So this talk about who we are. Say we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we walked according to them, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. But what he's saying is that there's a lust, there's this basic foundation evil that works within the world. And all of us did our sins, did our wickedness according to that. That's the power, that's the spirit, the zeitgeist of natural creation. It's just a movement. And we all lived according to that. And this is where most of us think of evil at. That the evil and the corruptions we see is because of societal pressures. Nature versus nurture type of thing. And we have these debates and we're saying evil come from where we are. That if we grow up in certain societies and we grow up in under certain conditions, we experience certain type of trauma, it's going to produce certain type of evil. And that's why we are the way we are. At my, at my job, we do this training. They had this whole new thing that the folks came down to the governor and redoing juvenile justice, destroying it, in my opinion. But one of the foundations of this whole new philosophy is there is no such thing as a bad kid. That's the foundation of it. That's what they teach us. There is no such thing as a bad kid. That kids are like cabbages. I'm quoting. That no bad seed, no bad kids, but you plant them in the right soil, you put them in the right environment, and you give them the right care and the right attention, they're going to blossom. This is what they teach us. Now, the place where I work, we got kids who get a joy out of kicking your sundo in and taking your TV. Not because he don't have a TV, because he wants yours. We got kids who go into clubs, who go into neighborhoods and shoot it up. Then get on Facebook Live and brag that they shot it up. Why? Because the dude was looking at them funny and tried to diss them in front of folk. So now we got dead babies, scared grannies, because one little fool thought he was being disrespected. But the reason he did that, according to these people, is not because he's bad, because he was placed into a bad environment and the cultivation and the environment around him didn't raise him up and give him all the right things that he needed to be a successful human being. And one day I was in one of these trainings, I asked the lady nice and politely. He told me I was just taking her now. There is no bad seed. There's just only bad ground and bad farmers. That's like, hey, have you ever planted something and it just didn't grow? And she looked at me a little strange. Then she thought about it. Like, yeah, some seeds just won't grow. Like, would that be a bad seed? Well, <laughs> 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 so sometimes something, I don't know what's it's something in the seed that just won't let it grow. It's bad. That's why you plant a lot of them. <laughs> that's, that's the reason why you put a whole lot of them down there. Because some, no matter how hard you work it, no matter how much 
attention you put into it and you play your Beethoven over your pot like some folk tell you to do, that thing still don't do nothing. <laughs> and there are human beings that this certain category of human beings that no matter what environment you put them in, that no matter how good their parents are, evil is going to be manifested in their lives. Because if you look at the scope of our world, if you go to Gibbs Village, you see bad children run around tearing stuff up. If you go to Wind Lakes, you don't see them because they stay inside. But there are bad children running around the house tearing stuff up. Whether you in Piggly Wiggly or Publix. You're going to see little bad children, greedy little children, thinking they can get whatever they want and whatever they want they see. And both sides, dark skin and light skin, you see sorry parents that don't know what they're doing. They're saying, come on here, boy. Come on here, uh-uh, we'll do it when we get at home. Don't do that now. Dark and light. Sometimes the language might switch a little bit, whether or not you in Piggly Wiggly or Publix, but it's the same thing. You got hardened, rebellious children. How do certain children get like this? I'll tell you what category of people this are. Everyone that was born. Yeah, if you fall in that category, you are one of these bad seeds that I'm talking about. <laughs> That's just the nature of you, of reality. That's the nature of who we are. Like I said, he told us that. We were by nature, in verse 3, children of wrath even as others. So there's nature that subjects us to the wrath of God. So what did you do? For God to have to punish you, you were born. And because you were born, evil began to flourish. That's who we are. Now, this is a strange thing about God. And it's contrary to what I hear a lot of times. Go to, uh, well, flip over in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Start at verse 3. It's a strange thing about God. It said, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jestings, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean persons, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God, and of God, in the kingdom of Christ, and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. And this is Paul. Giving this warning. Said, let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of, of disobedience. This is a strange thing that we got. Now, we are evil. 
How do we get evil? We were born that way. And God has this strange tendency to judge and punish evil. And for some reason, Paul seems to think that the whoremonger, the unclean person, the covetous man, will not inherit the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. So, Matthew 15 told us that fornication, adultery, comes from where? The heart of man. And now Paul telling us that because of fornication, whoremonger, and adultery, God going to judge you and you ain't going to enter the kingdom of God. And that make you say, hold up. How can I be exempt for something that is intrinsic to me? It's an innate thing for me to be an unclean person, a whoremonger, an adulterer. But you're going to tell me I'm not going to enter the kingdom of God? So there has to be a switch. There has to be a change. But Paul also gives us this one thing. Let's read it again. Look at it. I want you to see it. Verse 6 said, let no man deceive you with vain words. Read that again. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Read it one more time. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Paul seemed to think that it's possible that there will come a time or there will be a group of people who will try to convince you that you can be a covetous, unclean whoremonger and still inherit the kingdom of God. And he referred to this type of teaching as vain words, empty words. Now y'all understanding what I'm saying? And he finishes it. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of obedience. So because of these evils, the fornication, the whoremonging, the uncleanness, the covetousness, the wrath of God is coming upon these children of disobedience. And you see he's talking about the children of disobedience. Then he tell you, don't be a partaker with them. A partaker in what? All of the above. If you're a partaker in the fornication, the uncleanness, the, the covetousness, you're going to also be a partaker with the reward of the fornication, the uncleanness, and the covetousness. Don't be a partaker with them. But the thing I want to drive through is he's saying, don't let nobody trick you. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So anytime you hear somebody that gives you the permission to be a whoremonger, unclean person, covetous man, or an idolater, or what is an idolater, he equate covetousness with idolatry. We'll talk about that later. Anytime you hear somebody give you permission to be that and still inherit the kingdom of God, know that you are listening to vain words. They're empty words. Because if you fall under any of these categories, you are reflecting your true nature, and it's because of this nature the wrath of God remains upon you. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So by nature, we are enemies of God. That's Romans chapter 8. We cannot please God. But somehow, God still got this strange thing where he's going to judge people who are like this. Go to Proverbs. And this is where we probably going to stop at. Proverbs chapter 16. It's 17. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Proverbs 17, verse 15. It says, He that justified the wicked 
and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. So now, let's, let's get this picture in hand. So this is something that God hates. This is something that is an abomination to him, make him want to throw up, just totally vile to him. So the person that justifies the wicked and that condemns the just. Now, when we read about that, our mind immediately goes to us and the judgments we make about people, which is a true application of that verse. So if I'm the type of person that he praises upon wicked men, that gives and name an award, the George Washington Character Award. Because this is such a great man, a man of integrity, a man of strength. A man that should show true Christian righteousness. I fall under the abomination that the Lord hates. <laughs> because I'm justifying the wicked. That's true. But now, If it is true for me, is it also true for God? Is it possible for God to be something that he hates? It's the question that we have. Is it possible for God to be his own abomination? And the quick answer that comes to mind is, that don't sound right. Why would God be an abomination to himself? And if that is true, that God can't be an abomination, that means God will not justify the wicked and condemn the just. So if God is a God that is a righteous God, that will not pervert the thing that he refers to as an abomination, that God ain't no hypocrite, he going to judge you for doing it, but then when he do the exact same thing for the exact same reason in the exact same way, then it's evil. I mean, then it's okay. But God ain't that type of God. God is not going to justify the wicked and condemn the just. So that gives us a dilemma. And I like to refer to it as the divine dilemma. Because God messed this thing up for himself. He the one that put, he could have left it proverb about the whole Bible. He could have left it out of there. And we could have believed all the preachers that told us that now that we sat in that chair, that we raised our hand, we repeated up to that preacher, all of our sin don't matter no more. And we all could have went to hell happy with a smile on our face. Shouted our way on down there and been part of that Psalm 58 <laughs> in the congregation, speaking righteousness, but wickedness in our hearts. But God to set up this dilemma. He, it's not possible for God to justify the wicked. So what God cannot do is allow a wicked person to enter into the joy of the just. If he does that, he's an unrighteous God. Because it's an abomination to justify the wicked and condemn the just. So when Jesus refers to the fact that it's impossible for those who can't, have not been born again, that the people who must be born again, what he is saying is a change, a transformation must take place in order for us to enter the kingdom of God. 
Because if you continue as you are, who you are, you are wicked. You are unjust. You are unrighteous. Which exempts you from entering into the kingdom of God. But I raised my hand. I repeated after that man. So? Wickedness cannot inherit. God cannot justify the wicked. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So why must we be born again? Because you were born wrong the first time. You inherited corruption. And it is the mercy of God that gives us the opportunity to be recreated. But you must be recreated. And if there is no evidence of a new birth within you, you have no confidence that you're going to heaven. Because the wicked go astray from the womb. And Hebrews told us that we must have peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. And we talked about holiness. Holiness is that devotion and that, and that setting yourself apart for God's God use alone. Now, if wicked go astray from the womb, that means they're leaving God. So you can't be holy and astray at the same time. So since it's impossible for a person born naturally to stay devoted to God, it's impossible for a born person born naturally to be holy, which means it's impossible for him to inherit the kingdom of God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Since we start lying once we start talking, and no liar shall inherit the kingdom of God, it's impossible for a person who's been born naturally to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Cannot happen. We are exempt from all the blessings and the benefits of God. Because we are evil. And God cannot justify the wicked. So anybody that tells you, just because you said a prayer, it don't matter what you did. You cheating on your wife, I know and understand. You need to stop because that hinders your relationship. No, that is evil. It does more than hinder your relationship. It does more than hamper your joy. And you won't experience the joy of the fellowship with the brethren and of the Spirit of God. You will not. Eternally, you will not. <laughs> are you understanding what I'm saying so when you when you hear the good preach and some of them are good they do they lay it down and they tell you that some children of God can live like the son of the devil they're just carnal Christians he's just a liar because the carnal mind is enmity against God so you can't be a follower of God and a hater of God at the same time so when they tell you that I'm saying I just ain't got to the level, I'm saying Jay he on a whole nother level. I'm saying he, I'm saying he don't take all that. That brother, he just serious. He he doing a little too much. I'm saying I'm, I know I'm a little worldly at times. I'm saying I got my thing. I'm a worldly Christian. But the friendship of the world is what the enemy of God. And if you love the world, you hate God. So you can't be a follower of God, an obedient person of God, because those who follow God, obey God, I mean the ones who love God, obey him so you can't hate him and love him at the same time so if you got this dichotomy that I got my Christianity and he got his Christianity, I'm a little worldly, I'm a little more liberal, he's just super conservative, super traditional, religious and all that stuff one of y'all don't got Christianity because the Bible is still true when John spoke, his words meant something. And Jesus gives a promise in John 15 that he's going to bring to memory everything that he taught them cats. 
That's the promise that he told you. When the Holy Spirit come, I'm going to bring you memory to everything else I taught you. And this spirit is going to lead you and guide you into all truth. So when they speak, I got confidence in what they're saying. You understand what I'm saying? So if John, the apostle, is saying something that's different from John, the preacher, I'm going to listen to John, the apostle. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So if I listen to a message from John MacArthur, and it leads me to a conclusion that's different from John Apostle, don't seem like a hard choice. Because there wasn't no promise given to me for John MacArthur. But Jesus told me what was going to happen with John the Apostle. That everything he taught them, the Holy Spirit going to make them remember it. And the Spirit going to lead them and guide them into all truth. Then he added an extra promise on John 17 that the people who believe in their words going to have eternal life and they're going to live with him. That's deep. So when I weigh these words, John McArthur, cool. Got a lot of his books on my shelf. But anything I read, anything I hear, Lead me to a conclusion that different from John the Apostle? John MacArthur is a lie. Because the Apostle got the weight and the stamp of Jesus on him. You understand what I'm saying? And the Apostle told me that those who doeth righteousness are righteous. Don't let nobody trick you. But so if the preacher said, you are positionally righteous. You see? Once you believed in Jesus, Jesus took you from your position of being a sinner and he positionally placed you in Christ. Now, now you are seated with Christ in heavenly places and when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. He only sees Christ's righteousness. That's all that exists. All your sins have been taken and thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. So when you leave from this place, please, you're going to mess up. That's okay. God doesn't see your sin. You're justified in the eyes of Christ. And it's just as if you have never sinned. Then what are you going to tell you? Then you go back to him, you're like, preacher, man, I've been feeling sorry. I had all these lustful thoughts and crazy. I've been doing all type of sin and stuff. I slept with my girlfriend. I wasn't supposed to. Don't, 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 don't let condemnation come into you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Don't you remember your baptism? Do you remember your baptism? If you remember your baptism, there's nothing to worry about. You're okay. You don't need to be saved again. Salvation is eternal. If you have to do it again, it's not eternal. That's what he's going to tell you. And it's going to sound good. Sound convincing. That those who are in Jesus, one book I read said you don't have to repent. Repenting is for the unbeliever. If you're a believer, you don't repent. And the reason you don't repent is because God has forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. So when you originally repented, all your sins was in the future in relationship to the cross. So therefore, you are under the blood of Jesus. All your sins have been washed away. God no longer remembers your sins. So you repenting is a sign of your disbelief in the eternally in the preservation of the promise of God. That sounds deep. A little bit too deep. 
That's why I had to read it two times. And I ain't made it past that chapter in that book. <laughs> How? Because you must believe that you are destined to reign. And you have to understand this. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus reigns in you and it's an eternal life. And if you can lose it, it is not eternal. You understand what I'm saying? This is the type of stuff people say. But if that is true, and if I can enter into heaven with all my sin, with all my wickedness, with all the adultery, fornication, and lying in my heart, Jesus is a lie. He's an abomination unto himself. You understand what I'm saying? How many times does Satan have to sin and get kicked out of heaven? One. What exempt Adam and Eve from being in the garden? One sin. But people going to make you believe that you can do a billion, live like that, unchanged, and be with God. Which means God owed Adam and Eve an apology. You need to say, I'm sorry. See, I didn't see the future. I didn't know that my son was going to die and my heart was going to change and I was going to be so loving one day. <laughs> so, it's okay. We finna recreate the garden and y'all get to go back. And all that judgment I put on y'all, I'm sorry. I was just a little upset at the moment. <laughs> that sounds foolish though. Because it is. But we must understand that in this divine dilemma, God cannot justify the wicked. So anything we learn about our ability to be with him has to be some way, somehow, for God to transform the wicked and still be just. You understand what I'm saying? Because he just can't give us a free path. Anybody got any questions? Um, I have like, uh, what's like a question statement? But, um, so why do you think more, uh, like preachers and stuff don't preach the comments, what you said today, as far as what the word of God says about being a sinner at birth and all that kind of stuff? And do you think that that does have an effect on why so many people are lost or making it worse because people don't know the truth about the fact that you need God? Like, it's hard to get somebody saved if they feel that they already are. Why? I really don't know. But there's this drive and there's this temptation with everybody who love God and want to reach people to not to offend and to accommodate people to, 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 to you want people to like you. And so too much of this equals not a lot of like and not a lot of love. Because we live in a culture and a society where psychology has taken over psychology and the pseudosciences. So when you speak differently from what they speak, you lose uh, uh, some levels of intellectual credibility, if I put it another way. So if what the normal mood of neuroscience and social science don't match up with what I'm preaching from the Bible, the Bible is antiquated and it is outdated and need to be updated and we need to get hit with the times. So all this old stuff, that's old puritanical beliefs that men is evil and wicked and so on and so forth. And there's this other little thing that has taken place on both sides of the spectrum. What I mean by that is there's this group 
call themselves Calvinists, Reformers, and so on, and them the ones that dominate when it comes to this. They tell you about the total depravity and so on and so forth, and they big on this. They deep with it, but it's connected to a whole chain of theology that puts a whole lot of people off because you don't agree with their con- their conclusion and the way they string it together. You have to accept all of it or you're wrong. And so since the domination of this preaching come from those type of people, a lot of people automatically swing the pendulum to the other way. But then there's also this group that a lot of us are more connected with, this strong, strict, traditional holiness movement that we call the black church that grew out of the Wesleyan movement. And it equates holiness with an outside form. And so a lot of people were scarred and hurt by those people because they were bashed, they were put down, because of fringe issues. I'm saying because you, your skirt, one of blue, blue jean skirt that covered your ankle, you ain't saved. I'm saying because you, your pal Nike had a red heart on the back of it for representing Valentine's. You're a devil. <laughs> All of so on and so forth. And so you got people coming out of these hurts and coming out of these movements. And we know that ain't right because all they're doing is running people off. So the opposite must be true. So since the Calvinists condemning the whole world unless you're part of this special people and all their religion is about this knowledge stuff, that's the way people look at it, then they wrong. And the only other people who talking like they talking are these super strict holiness people who condemning you because you chew gum in the back of the church and when put spit it in the hand of the usher when you walk by. <laughs> and you a heathen. So the opposite got to be true. So people don't want to run away from God, some of them. So after you bruise me, you hurt me, what you were teaching me cannot be true. So now we got this grace and we got this love and we got this acceptance because God ain't like you because you are mean and you are evil. And that's a part of it. It's a little deeper than that. Another part of it because the heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately <laughs> and it leads people astray. Did that answer your question? Um, what is the difference between sanctification and the baptism with Holy Spirit? Uh, the difference between sanctification and baptism with the Holy Spirit. In reality, there is no difference. Because once you're baptized into the Holy Spirit, a baptism with the Holy Spirit is basically, it's a play on the terms. Baptism to be immersed or to be soaked in in the Holy Spirit. So you feel with the Holy Spirit takes charge. The Holy Spirit covers your life. And that is the means of sanctification. Well, I think it's Titus 2 verse 3 talking about we're washed through the sanctification and the regeneration of the Spirit. So there's a washing and there's a cleansing that takes place through the Spirit. And that's what sanctifies us. So in technically in the definition of the words, there's a difference. Be baptized with the Spirit means to be filled with the Spirit, to be immersed with the Spirit. The Spirit controls you, rule you. To be sanctified means to be set apart. But one produces the other, if that answers your question. How can Jesus pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future? How could he do so? Yes. Uh, it, it depends on what you mean by that. He does it, one, because that's what the, the design and the plan of God. But if you mean he paid for our sins, past, present, and future, in the sense that <clears throat> this one payment counsels them all, the Bible doesn't teach that. 
Because if that was true, no one would have to repent and nobody would have to believe. Because all of us who were born post 33 AD, his death was in the past. But we still preach repentance. We still preach believing in God. We still preach turning from our sins. So if by, you, if by saying he died for our sins, past, present, and future, in the sense of it cancels all of our sins from that point on, then you're going down to some heresy lines like Carlton Pearson. But if you mean by that, that his one payment is applicable to all our sins, past, present, and future, he did that because that was the design of God and that's what set it up. He's the eternal Lamb of God. And God set this sacrificial substitutionary system up so that sacrifice atones for our sins. That makes sense to you? A little bit? Okay. Recalling the story about the vine dresser mm-hmm. and the tree, essentially Jesus is responsible for bringing this, making this tree healthy and produce and maturing and doing everything it's supposed to. But it seems in that passage, there's layers to that. Like there are some fertilization, like nurturing and pruning and shaping, and it's constant. Mm-hmm. So when I think about like who can inherit the kingdom, like when we talk about sinlessness, do we as human beings, do we ever become fully aware of our the depths of our sin? Like what is that? What does the transition into eternity look like for a believer walking in Jesus? He's doing the work. He's responsible, essentially, for doing everything to produce good works in you. And you're, from the story, it seems you're responsible to respond as the tree, like to respond to the stimulus. So how, at the end, would we ever be completely sinless, meaning like, there's just nothing there in our heart sinful or is it the revealing of the sin that Jesus walks us through that uh, <clears throat> well I'm here to make sure I'm hearing you right so when you talks about getting to the place where there's nothing in our hearts sinful the catch in that is that all temptation isn't necessarily sinful okay. if you if you get what I'm saying mm-hmm. So it's possible to get to a place where none of the, what we would look socially as, the vows or the evils of this world, doesn't tempt you. Because Jesus made the statement that the, the tempter cometh, but he has nothing within me. And, that, and I think it's possible for a believer to get to that place. But would that mean you ever rise above temptation? No. Because all true evil, if you go by the, talks of, focus on the definition of it. Evil is the corruption of good. That's all it ever is. It's just the corruption of good. It's not an entity unto itself. So it's possible for me to have all pure thoughts and all pure desires and still be tempted. Because it's possible for me to be tempted to do all purity in an ill way or for an ill motive. You get what I'm saying? So will you ever rise to the point where you're no longer tempted? No. But can you rise to a place well, the base evils are the things that, that once so easily beset you doesn't anymore. Yes. So once you get to that place, your temptations just will switch. Just like, look at the temptations of Jesus. Yeah. He was tempted, tempted to do stuff none of us would ever, ever be tempted with. 
like turn stone into bread to prove that you're the Messiah. I don't think the devil ever gonna ask me to do that. Because I'm gonna laugh. <laughs> prove I'm Messiah. What you mean? <laughs> so you get what I'm saying? So in that growth, in that transition, in that movement, like look at the temptation that Paul talked about he had. He was saying that he was tempted that he don't get lifted up above measure. So his temptation came not from evil in the sense of he wanted to sleep with somebody's wife, but from evil in the sense of God gave him this great revelation and it's possible for him to think that he's somebody now. And us will look at him like, oh, dude, you are somebody. <laughs> Everybody is somebody special. But that was him to his temptation. That was the thing that he had to fight against. Just not conceiving of himself as ascertained or reached to a level of, well, he's somebody special. You're like, that ain't deep. Like, I read John Wesley journals. He talked about the evil that came to him. And he was saying that I'm old now. Feel temptation creeping in. I'm farther and farther tempted to sleep beyond 5 a.m. <laughs> You'd be like, what? That's your struggle, dude? <laughs> but to him, that was temptation. Because to him, he said, I'm tempted to be lazy. So him, even though he was old, his latter in his latter years, he ran all around this country on a horse preaching, then being sleeping past five. God, no, man, the devil trying to make me lazy. But that's the thing that popped into his mind is temptation. Oh, he talks about looking at the picture frames on the wall and struggling with himself. If I wouldn't have bought that picture frame, how many more people could I have helped? Like, oh, dude, you're getting too deep. Like, <laughs> it's a frame, man. But you see the growth and the transformation and the temptation as he grew and as he expanded and as he got older and more mature in his walk. So we will never reach to a point where we're above temptation, but it's possible to reach to a point where the evils of this world and the, the things that are blatantly societally evil don't pull us anymore, if, it, if that makes any sense. So one last question concerning that. So it seemed again from that story that sin, like there's a obvious sin that he's spelled out as sin, mm -hmm. but then there's other things that's individual to our own. Like you, I think you're kind of pointing to that temptation that so not wanting to work hard might not be a problem for somebody else, but for somebody else, it's really, a, it can become mm -hmm. a gripping temptation, which becomes sinful. So it seems like some sins are just personal sins. Like they. Yeah, I can agree with that. Okay. And uh, we got Romans 14, I think it's, can't think it's 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 10. But it talks about those issues that are not blanketly evil. Most time we use the example of meats. But in Romans, is either 14 or 15, he makes the statement, whatever is not of faith is sin. So he's talking to the people who you've been convicted in your heart that this is evil. Now, in and of itself, it is not evil, but you have developed that conviction in your heart. He's saying, for you to do it, whatever is not of conviction, is sin. So for you to be convicted that it's wrong, and you for you to still do it, for you, that is sinful. You, you, you get what I'm saying? It's like we had this conversation, this young lady was talking about watching movies. And it, it was jokingly, but it turned real serious real fast. And it just destroyed Bible study for, <laughs> for everybody else. 
Now, in the conversation, she started talking about one of her favorite movies was Coming to America. Nobody said it was wrong. We just listening, just joking and talking. But then she made the statement, I know it's wrong or I know I shouldn't, some, some to that degree. But it's my favorite movie. And this one preacher just stopped everything. Like, hold up. What? And the reason he did it is because she felt comfortable enough to say, I know, I'm convinced that this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now, do the preacher think that it's wrong for her to watch Coming to America? We don't know because he didn't say. And it destroyed the rest of the Bible study from that point on because the idea was trying to get this person to see you can't have a conviction in your heart that God don't want me to do something, no matter how trivial, and still feel free to do it because that's a whole nother level of disobedience. So in that sense, that it's possible for God to give us convictions and to reveal things to us that may not necessarily in and of itself be evil. But once he gives that to you and he shows that to you, you can't do it. Yeah. Sorry, one last. So how does in this grand world as Christians living in society under certain governance and rules, bodies, regulations, government, like how do we reconcile like our own personal convictions with legislature legislation to perhaps create boundaries for other people? What do you mean by that? Expand a little bit. So in a society where it's like supposedly separation of church and state, how do we then lend to our our thought processes about what is sinful? Like I, there's obvious sins, right? There's mm-hmm. obvious boundaries. And then those personal things that we just feel like aren't right for ourselves, but then we try to limit other people based off of those. Like how, how do we even interact with lawmaking and stuff like that and be righteous, so to speak? or lend our righteous perspective um in a way that is just yeah <clears throat> now that's one of the fresh problems that we have or anybody has in quote unquote democratic society because in the times of Paul per se that wasn't necessarily a problem because they was in a pure republic and so the laws of the magistrate <clears throat> and the legislate that that ran it, and there wasn't no question in that. So, but I think the principles still apply. It's one you as an individual has a responsibility before God. So if you are convic- convinced or convicted by God that something is evil, you having a responsibility to hold to that and not compromise your convictions purely for democratic or political ease so if you understand what i'm saying now how do you navigate that if you're in that arena it takes a level of wisdom and it takes a level of boldness that only god can give like i said we only get pockets of that when you look to people like daniel daniel lived in a monarchy and he was a part of a kingdom that he had some sway he had some power within that but he didn't have as much say so as we had but in that, he was able to hold to his standards and hold to his rules. And sometimes he had to buck against the system of the kingdom because of his standards and because of his rules. So we see no compromise in him whatsoever, even though he was a key political figure, so to speak. 
Now, if we was to plug him into a system where his voice actually meant something, do I believe that Daniel will speak up for righteousness and fight for righteousness? Yes, I do. Because the time where the king called on him, he didn't hold his tongue. So when God gave him the word and the time was to speak, he spoke to the king and he called the king to repentance and told him what to do, not holding anything back. You, you, you get what I'm saying? So if we was to extrapolate that and place that into a society where he had to speak democratically, I believe you have to hold to your standards and faith in God that God hears you and God will back you up. So when it comes to the nuances of personal conviction and pure biblical revealed truth, that's where wisdom comes into play. Because there are certain personal standards that I have that I cannot hold you to because there's not biblical truth. Or I can't point to you what God thus said the Lord. But there are certain things that is a re revelation of who God is and is a part of my identity in Christ that I cannot compromise on. So I have to navigate through these areas by holding these convictions and holding to these truths and not being ashamed to stand there. Now the tough part for us is that our nation is so bipartisan and two have become to dominate that you end up being by yourself. Because if you truly stand by a biblical standard, you have to call everybody wrong. And you don't have no party. <laughs> you don't have no friends if you talk about it too much. Because you got your dark Christian friends who hold to this certain standard. That when you talk about certain things, you're going to be an Uncle Tom Republican. Then you got your light Christian friends who hold to this other certain party. And if you talk about certain things, you're going to be a liberal socialist. And they're going to cast you to the side. And you just stand there and you say both of y'all wrong. And now one of y'all no Christian, so let's talk about the gospel. <laughs> let's see what the gospel got to say about this. And let's preach Jesus because you're stuck. But that's that's for us as citizens, you hold to your convictions. And you vote biblical truth. Sometimes that means you have to pick one. Go ahead. Now, in that, and, and this is a, a Christian misconception. Belief in freedom and love is not me fighting for you to be sinful. We can't do that. But belief in freedom and love. It's not me forcing you to be who I am because I know you can't be. You, you understand what I'm saying? And, and it works the opposite way. Belief in freedom and love is not me pushing you in your evil or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Because what we have to keep in perspective is that sin is sin and all of it is sinful. And we hold certain sins to a standard that we don't hold other ones to. Because I would never legislate, like I got this kid, the boy's roguish. The boy's more than the most roguish children I ever seen ever. It's no lie, I've seen a lot of roguish ones, but he, 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 he up there at the top. And my boss made him write a letter as part of his punishment for stealing. And in his letter he said, I know I'm a thief and I'm really sorry about that, but I cannot help it. It just excites me and it thrills me to steal 
And I say, I understand that and I really believe he's speaking the absolute truth. But does my love for him causes me to legislate stealing? Because as long as he can remember, he's been stealing. Start a bubble gum in the counter while you're waiting on your mama to pay for the stuff. You just take it and put it in your pocket. And it trans to, to Nissan Maximus. <laughs> I'm saying it, he don't know a life outside of stealing. He cannot conceive of doing anything other than stealing. And he admitted in his heart once he was forced to sit down and think about it. I just enjoy it. I cannot help it. So does that mean that since I'm the boss of the dorm and the unit that he live in, I need to rewrite the rules of the state of Alabama and say, hey, I got some rights in here. I'm control of this unit. So from now on out, if your stuff gets stole, we cannot condemn this person because he is just expressing his natural innate desires. My love for him as a human being, I got to speak for his freedom to steal. Everybody look at me like I'm a fool. But when we switch it to some certain other stuff, everybody look at me like I'm a fool if I say the opposite. And so it works the same. We can't take hatred out of people's heart, but murder is still against the law. And none of us will advocate for the alleviation of murder as being a crime. We ain't finna write no bills. We ain't finna protest. We ain't finna put up no sign. That all these little young wild hooligans out here shooting up everybody. They wild. They crazy. They got these guns. Y'all gave them to them. So let's let them be them. We can't judge them in their morality. Because evil and hatred is in their heart. You, you get what I'm saying? So I don't advocate for murder because I know people who've been evil and hateful and been fighting. And I talked to a little girl. She said, man, I, I, just, I just remember being angry. But why was you angry? I don't know. Sometimes I just see people walking down the street and I just slap them. And we just get to fight. This is a real conversation. <laughs> like, where did that come from? I don't know. It just, it just was in me. So do I get to go down to my legislator and say, hey, these assault laws y'all got, it is an affront to my friend. Because she has a desire, an innate desire, that she loves slapping people. And love cannot be against the law. <laughs> is there a time where you just can't be part of the decision making it depends it's on what the decision the is I, I think you can but depends on what the decision is and then the key point for us as Christians is we don't fight political battles because we know that doesn't change it now if I have an opportunity like me in my heart, if I can go and change the divorce laws, I would. Now, would that stop people from cheating? No. But I believe in the sanctity of marriage. And God had a design for marriage when he created it that man has corrupted. And our laws are permitting people to freely corrupt the design for marriage that God has. And I think that is an affront to the kingdom of God. So me as a righteous citizen that gets to vote, if I had a chance to vote, I will vote against the no-fault divorce law. If I was a legislator, I'd do everything I can to take it off the book. If people going to still cheat, yes, they're going to still cheat. But my conviction about marriage forced me and leads me down to that conclusion. You, you get what I'm saying? So there are some things that you're going to be wrong 
on both sides. So instead of me picketing and fighting, I just talk to married people and tell them and make them feel real bad about thinking about cheating. You bring it back to the personal relationship, <laughs> yeah. correct? Yeah, I do. Now, if they put the amendment on there, I'm going to vote for it. Now, do I think they're going to change stuff? No. But until then, I'm just going to call these suckers out who claim they men of God and cheating and divorcing just like crazy. Any other questions?